Let's all take our Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians 10. 2 Corinthians 10. I did want to pick up and get into the love chapter back with our, uh, our spiritual gifts series. But I know that Dr. Hickson is coming. I wanted to uh, not start something that we were easily going to lose on, especially since love is such an important concept in the body of Christ. And it actually took a lot of praying to come to what we needed to look at today. But hopefully this will help prepare your mind for Dr. Hickson's conference. I trust that all of you are signed up or are going to sign up soon. You just go to our website, scroll down just a little bit, click on it. The conference is absolutely free. You'll have all the times there. Please come. It's going to be some important material. We will not be live streaming this. We'll record it, both audio and video, but we are not live streaming it. Okay, and that's simply because we don't want you to stay home and eat chips. We want you to come here and eat chips, and we want you to be part of the Bible conference. So uh, it'd be very important to do that. So it is manipulative in every way, in an encouraging, spiritual, godly, divine way. Yes, be at church. Yes, it is. So, all right, let's do this. Starting chapter ten, we're going to read verses one through six. Let's just read them through real quick. We'll back up. We'll get started. Now, I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. How many of us remember Little Red Riding Hood? Yes. I was having a conversation with my wife. She was talking to me about a project she wanted to do, and she brought up Little Red Riding Hood. And I thought, man, I've been, I've been dying to have something I could relate my sermon to so that hopefully we could understand this. And that just might be it. It's great. So I got on Spotify, and I laid back, and I had a guy read me a little six-minute bedtime story <laughs> of Little Red Riding Hood. Little Red Riding Hood is interesting. Why? Because she's going to her grandmother's house. Her grandmother loves her very much and made her this beautiful hood. And she decides one day she's going to take some cake and some other things to her grandmother. What grandmother doesn't want that, right? So she she decides to get all of this together. She starts down on the road. And who meets her on the way? The wolf. And you know what's insane about this story? Again, it's written in 1697, but I don't think things were much different there. She talks to the wolf. Now, is that your first inclination? You're like, Jeremy, it's a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is. But is it? She talks to the wolf. He starts poking around for some information. Find out where she's going. Runs on ahead, leaving the conversation. Eats her grandmother. And then poses as her grandmother sitting in her bed. I have to believe that Red Riding Hood is the dumbest fairy tale character ever. (laughs) Because she innocently entertains a long conversation with the wolf that gives up all kinds of voluntary information. And then when she gets there, she's saying things like, hmm, what big eyes you have. (laughs) The better to see you with. How do you know that's not your grandmother? (laughs) Right? Here's what bothers me. I think a lot of churches and a lot of Christians are the same way. I think a lot of times we as believers innocently entertain a lot of conversations that have set forward a trap for ourselves of either capitulating our faith, giving in to what the masses want, playing right into the hands of Satan's plans for what he wants to get accomplished, 
And even when we get face to face with it, we ask questions like, why are their ears so big? And when we get these lying responses, we buy them. How do we keep from that? How do we guard ourselves from that? We are putting ourselves in the middle of a book that we've learned a lot about 1 Corinthians. Maybe we've learned a little bit about 2 Corinthians, but if you know, this church had all kinds of issues. And one of the sad things that happened is as Paul came along to try to help them and correct a lot of things that they were getting wrong, putting his heart out there, loving them, even speaking into their lives some of the hard things that they needed to hear. When that happened, everything seemed good for a while, but then Paul had to go because he had other churches to take care of. He had other places to meet with people. He needed to go share the gospel, and he was starting new churches every opportunity that he got. So after he leaves, anybody want to guess who comes along? The wolf. They're known in Scripture as Judaizers. And who the Judaizers are, are those people who may or may not be believers, but first and foremost, they're false teachers. And the way that you know that they are false teachers is because they immediately take the gospel of grace and they capsize that and start advocating things like circumcision and law-keeping in order for God to accept them and love them. Now, before we move forward, it needs to be clear. What is the gospel of grace? The gospel of grace is that I am eternally guilty before a holy God. He is my creator. I am his creation. So before we even go down the trail at all, I'm automatically answerable to him and him alone, ultimately as my authority. The problem is, is that I am born in sin and I sin. So I got two big old strikes against me and I can't dig myself out of either one of those holes. I may try to stop sinning, but it never stops me from being who I am. And my biggest problem is who I am. So with that, God, wanting to have a relationship with me, desires to rectify that problem without corrupting his justice or his truth. And he sends his son as an innocent person to die a criminal's death when he didn't deserve it, Pay for my sins and your sins and for the sins of all people of all time who will ever live at anywhere. And in doing so, now make salvation as an offer that is absolutely free because his work was sufficient. God proved it by raising him from the grave three days later. He is now a living Savior and he desires to save all of us by what he has done and then to live his life through us so that we are not having to live life alone. The cross takes care of my sins problem, the bad things that I do. The resurrected life of Christ takes care of my sin problem, the very issue of who I am. That is the gospel of grace. Now, the way that that is appropriate to you is by faith alone, by believing, by believing what God has done for you through Jesus Christ, his son, and dying on the cross and raising from the grave. No one deserves to be saved, and no one can earn their salvation from anything they could do. He offers it as a free gift, and that is grace. No one will ever deserve it. He freely gives it. That's the gospel of grace. When you have somebody coming in after that's been clearly stated and saying, well, your life needs to look like this. Your clothes ought to look like this. You can only listen to this type of music. You can't do that anymore. Don't you know that that's wrong? Don't you know that people will frown upon that? That's called legalism. And what that does is it completely squashes and kills the grace of God from being effective in a congregation. Now, the Judaizers in Paul's situation were very, very sneaky. They came in and they decided, not only are we going to discredit his message, we're going to discredit him. Let's get rid of him. Let's deal with him. Let's tear him down as a teacher. No one should listen to him. He has no authority whatsoever. And then that way, this can be the type of church that we want. Anytime that people get their hands on the church, slap them. Just making sure you're awake. Moving on. Look at verse one. Now I, Paul, now if you don't know, before he was redeemed, his name was Saul. And the word Saul actually meant beg. So he changed his name once he came to Christ, 
And Paul means little. He does this on purpose. Why? Because he's got nothing to prove here. Just because his character is being attacked, just because there's a character assassination going on by false teachers, doesn't mean that he reacts in highly turbulent and emotional ways. It's not how Paul handles this situation. He's going to come to it meekly. He's going to deal with it rightly. And we're going to see what that looks like. Now, I, Paul, myself, urge you, and that word urge, you'll probably remember from Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I exhort you, brothers, by the mercy of Christ. I beseech you by the mercies of Christ. It's a begging. Notice he's not commanding here. He's begging them to make a right decision, to be obedient, okay? And look what he says, by the meekness and gentleness of who? Why in the world does he bother to bring that up? Well, look what he does here. He's trying to take the emulation of Christ to be projected through himself of displaying who he truly is. Let me show you why this is important. Isaiah 53, 2. If you just want to write it down, maybe we've got a note sheet that is inside here. But if you want to just look at that. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Let's be honest, in our culture, meekness and gentleness are not acceptable commodities. We want people with power. We want an iron fist. We love shock and awe. We want all kinds of speculations. We love gossip. In fact, we call it juicy gossip, don't we? All you kids say, I got some tea to spill. I know your lingo, you secret people. But you guys want to bring that stuff up? I got some girl. I I was sitting there the other day. Nathaniel was doing something crazy. I'm sitting there like, that kid's crazy. And all of a sudden, I heard out of the side of my ear, I heard, girl, I got some tea to spill. And I was looking over like, didn't want to step in it until I put together and realized, oh, they got gossip to talk about. Okay, that's what it is. But what we don't find is anything to do with gentleness and meekness. Paul gives his declaration of how he seeks to live. Write this one down too, because it's a good one to memorize if you don't have it. Galatians 2.20. Here's what he says. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In this life that I now live in the flesh, I live by what? By faith in the Son of God. Why? Because he loved me and he gave himself up for me. So Paul's declaration and how he seeks to handle his life all the time is never about Paul's wants and Paul's agenda and how Paul's going to make things happen and Paul's tactics and Paul's ideas. He's not worried about that. He understands that he is nothing and Christ is everything. And that's why he gives a solid declaration like that. So he's appealing to them about something, urging them, beseeching them, begging them based on things like the meekness and the gentleness of Christ, which he seeks to emulate. Look what he says. Dash. And if you want to know, yes, Paul did have the spiritual gift of sarcasm. Look what he says. I, who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. Was Paul two-faced? He was not. In fact, he's referring to something that the Judaizers has decided to say. Go down to verses 9 and 10 in your Bibles in the same chapter, and look what happens here. In verse 9 he says, For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they say, His letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. This is what the Judaizers are telling people. You shouldn't listen to Paul. Why? Look at him. Look at him. He's not America's top model. He's not going to make it on the runway. Nobody's ever going to take a picture of him and put it in a magazine. You don't have a movie star on your hands. He's dumpy. He's balding. Anybody check behind his ears lately? Right? Did that matter in God's hands? No. Everybody see that his speech is unimpressive? You know what that tells you? He don't talk good. That's what it tells you. He doesn't have the best verbiage in the world. Highly educated man. Some people believe he maybe had a stuttering problem. Maybe he had a lisp. Maybe he just couldn't form words well. Who knows? Did it matter in the hands of God? It didn't matter in the hands of God. And yet they wanted to use this as every reason to tear him down. Now notice he makes it clear the situation that he's talking about by referring to the fact that they believe that when he's gone, 
He's a big man on campus in his letters. But when he shows up, he's very unimposing, very meek, very gentle. Doesn't want to cause any problems necessarily. But Paul is not a two-faced person. Look at verse 2. He says here, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some. Who are the some that Paul is going to have to be bold and courageous against? The Judaizers, the wolf. Those who have come in to innocently get some conversation going in order to figure out how to manipulate these Christians and dismantle their faith piece by piece. I have an interesting quote from a guy named Robert Grimacki. Really good writer if you ever get a chance to read some of his commentaries uh, on the Bible. Look what it says. There is no contradiction between humility and authoritative boldness. Some of us think in our minds that that doesn't exist. That if you're authoritatively bold, you're a jerk. So you have to be humble all the time throughout all of that. Otherwise, you're not really a Christian. You're not walking with the Lord. You're not in the Spirit. If you're upset about a matter of truth and God's word is on, on the table about what it has to say, be as bold as you want to. It doesn't mean be rude. Be bold. There's nothing wrong with having that authoritative stance. Christ had both. He embraced children. And he also drove the money changers from the temple. Same guy. Sometimes we forget that. We were watching something, a cartoon that Voice of the Martyrs put out yesterday. And we had watched part of it up until the turning over of the, of the, the tables, right? And so I started it, and I looked over at Nathaniel, because Jesus comes in, and he's like freaking out. He's like, my father's house is a house of prayer, and he's picking up these tables, and he's tossing them, and money's going to, I mean, it's a cartoon and everything. I'm looking at Nathaniel, and he's going, you know, just like watching the whole thing. I'm like, he's getting it. He's plugged in. Yes, this is, I was like, why is he doing that? So we had to stop it, pause it, explain, you know, this is good stuff. Same Jesus. Was Jesus two-faced? No. What does it say? Circumstances dictated which characteristics should be publicly manifested. As a Christian, you have to make a decision about when you need to be bold and authoritative with the Word of God and when it's time to be humble and meek and sit back in the background and let things transpire. A lot of times you just let people talk and they set their own trap. And then you find the opportunity to bring forward the Word of God. Now, these Judaizers have got some problems. Notice what he says here. I ask that when I'm present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose uh, to be courageous against some. Now, what's the problem? Who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. Now, predominantly, unless the context dictates it, the idea of walking has to be with how you conduct yourself, your behavior. And one of the main accusations they have against him is the reason why Paul isn't consistent in the way he acts with you is because he's really walking in the flesh and he doesn't know what it is to walk in the spirit. Now, can you imagine those guys if they were saved in heaven with Paul right across from them right now? That's got to be an interesting situation. What if they weren't saved and because they didn't believe in the gospel of grace, they ended up in hell? That's a totally different situation. But the accusation is, is Paul walks according to the flesh. Here's where the problem comes. Verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, look how he makes a distinction. We do not, what's he say? War. How come he doesn't say we do not walk according to the flesh? We all struggle with it. Notice that by using the word war here, Paul lets you know exactly what he thinks about this situation. And here's what he's telling you. It's satanic, period. You mean they were all dressing up in red long underwear with pitchforks and longhorn tails and dancing around dead people? No. I'm saying by simply speaking against the truth of God's word, it's satanic, period. Satan is a love and a worship of self. That's what Satanism is. Now, whether you want to subscribe to the whole satanic Bible and all that stuff, that's fine. You're just taking it one step further down a dark old road. That's fine. But it really starts with the idea of questioning the authority of God. Now look where he moves here. We do not walk in the flesh, but we war according to the flesh. This word war, if you want to mark it down, it means to do battle. It's the idea of people who are prepared and waiting for the general to give the charging command to move forward and engage and get the job done. 
That's what this word means. It's where we actually get the English word strategy from. This is the strategy that Paul sees. And here's what he sees. It's not the Judaizers in and of themselves that are the problem. It's the spiritual demonic influence that's behind them that is propelling them to want to speak against a gospel that if people hear it, they actually are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That is satanic. Because it's preventing salvation. Now, another good guy that you might want to check out, Warren Wiersbe. He's got a good quote. Let's throw it up there and see it. Many believers today do not realize that the church is involved in warfare. And those who do understand the seriousness of the Christian battle do not always know how to fight the battle. They try to use human methods to defeat demonic forces, and these methods are doomed to fail. Think about the last situation where you have major contention. Think about the last argument that you had, whether it was with a believer or a non-believer. Think about the last time that there was just this, I don't know how we're going to get through this. I don't know how we're going to do this. I don't know how it's going to move forward. This is all going to fall apart. And what you find out is, is as much as you want to be mad at the person, the person is not the problem. It's the demonic influence leading them from what God's word plainly says. It's a truth that either they don't know or that they've ignored. Spiritual warfare is never a power struggle. It's never a power struggle. It is always a truth struggle. Each and every time. And the authoritative fact of the word of God ends up being how you measure these things out and how you deal with them. Now Paul is going to unfold and show us how this happens. Look with me. Well, let's do this first. What would it look like to have a flesh answer to something? Anybody here struggle with anger? Surely nobody. Nobody does, do they? <laughs> yes. Right? Write this down for anger. James chapter 1, verse 20. How do we use the truth to come against this? The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. For the Christian, what does God desire to be coming out of your life? No. It's not what the text says. I'll give you a hint. It's at the end of this verse. He wants the righteousness of God flowing out of us. Not just the fact that we are declared righteous before God, but the fact that we're producing righteousness. Guess what? Anger is never a means of getting there. Anger is about who? Self. Self. And if it's about self, it's satanic. Period. Because it's about what I want, how it ought to be. You got to do it my way or it's wrong. Trust me, I'm guilty of this. And when it doesn't happen, the first response that you have, the reaction that wants to come out, is an emotional response that gets your train all out of whack. Now, anger is leading the charge, and what's not coming out of the back of it is the righteousness of God. You're now burning bridges with people. You're now destroying relationships with people. Nothing good ever comes out of that. That's what it is to war according to the flesh. I know I've got an anger situation I've got to deal with. Or I've got a situation I've got to deal with. How are you going to deal with it? Well, anger. They, you know what they deserve. You know what they said to me. You know what they did to me. And we give all these justifications, these logical reasons as to why we need to bend somebody over the whipping post and get them with the cat of nine tails every time. That never works. And here's the thing. God is never glorified in it. Look at verse 4. For, here's another explanation. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. Everybody see the word weapons? This is not talking about your, your guns. That's how humans fight. That's how you fight in the flesh. Tanks. Starting wars. That's how Putin fights. That's not how Christians fight. Christians got a whole different arsenal of weapons. In fact, this word weapons here, if you're familiar with Romans 6, you present yourselves as instruments, your members of your body, as instruments of righteousness to God, as weapons of righteousness to God. What are some weapons the Christians have? The Bible. The Word of God is the primary one, isn't it? Prayer. Making war on the floor, right? Getting on your knees and lifting it up to God. 
God can get a lot more accomplished when we ask him to get his hand involved than just hoping that he'll show up. He wants us to come to him in these tense situations and lay it all out for him. What else? Jay, you can say your answer now. Love. Very good. And how do we know that? Because it's a supernatural love. It's not a, I got to make myself love. Let's muster up the love around here. It's not a touchy-feely love. It's not that you've got to get all of this uh, romanticism involved in it. It's a love that comes with expecting nothing in return, just benefiting the person for the better of getting them closer in their relationship with the Lord. That's all that is. It is a supernatural love that has to be produced through us. But notice, it's not a weapon of the flesh. Agape love can never be fleshly done. The flesh profits nothing. It comes to nothing. It'll produce nothing. Dead things don't produce anything. What's it, what else? What else we got? The Holy Spirit's a big deal, right? I mean, if you're going to be praying and using the Word of God and loving people, the Holy Spirit better be in there or somebody's disjointed. You're going to have a major problem. And one of the greatest problems we have in today's churches, we don't rely enough on the Holy Spirit. We do not look for Him to lead. We're not patient for Him to work. When God says, wait on the Lord, what are we waiting on? We're waiting on the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit does. Well, how come He ain't here now? Doesn't He know I got time? I need Him now. Now's His scheduled time. I put it in my phone. He ought to be here. You know why? Because he wants to answer that situation divinely and so he's prepping everything else to get it done. There's a lot of factors that work in something like that. God doesn't just break people's necks in order to get them in line. He's got to love them and encourage them towards the truth. Otherwise they fail. So the Holy Spirit takes his sweet time and we need him definitely. We need to wait on him because he is one of our weapons in our warfare. Anybody else got any more? Worship is a huge one. Why? Come on, man. If you're in church, silence your phone, please. Is God worthy of worship? So what else are we doing? Pray? Isn't prayer worship? It is worship. Prayer is worship. Reading the word of God is worship. Submitting to the Holy Spirit is worship. Why? Because what worship is is saying, God, you alone are worthy of all the honor, glory, praise, and I am utilizing the facets that you've given to me in such a way as to where you're made much of every time that I'm applying myself to it. See, where we get into problems is where we're trying to solve situations without God's involvement, and there's no divine presence, and there is no worship that's springing out of that, and we wonder why we're frustrated by the situation. Because it was done in the flesh. It was done in the flesh. Here's two that we might not have thought of. How about compassion on people? Is that a good weapon? Man, read Proverbs. A kind word with somebody dismantles a lot. As opposed to coming in all hasty and trying to tear the doors down. Solomon knew. Solomon wrote about it often. Search your Proverbs, you'll find them. Here's another one, rebuke. Rebuking people. See, we don't like that word. Why? Because of the hard K sound. And so we think it automatically equates to a big whack-a-mole hammer to get in line. What's wrong with you? Don't you know God's word? Kind of thing. And that's not what it is. It's simply bringing them to the word of God and saying, here's where the problem is. You're out of alignment. That's where it's at. Being willing to point people in a truthful direction because of what the truth already states. That's a rebuke. And rebuke is a powerful weapon in order to use in situations where there is false teaching going on amongst the churches and amongst Christians. He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful. Theos, dunatos is how it's pronounced in the Greek. God, divine. God strength, God power. It's talking about the Holy Spirit. In other words, if you're going to fight this war, the Holy Spirit has got to be the energy, the strength, the power that comes behind it. Well, how's that going to help me slap that person upside the head? It's not, because that's not how you handle it. You've automatically, when you engage this, have got a conflict somewhere. 
And only the Holy Spirit can reach into that area and correct it and set it aright so that you can move forward successfully. Otherwise, you will end up in a ditch every time. You say, well, where is that and how do I do it? Here's what it is. Notice, they're divinely powerful for the destruction of, what's it say? Fortresses. For the tearing down of strongholds. This word is actually being used metaphorically by Paul here. It's not that there's some big castle somewhere and we've all of a sudden got to scale the walls and start pushing it over brick for brick. That's not the issue. The issue is when you are dealing with something that somebody is holding to so tightly in their life that is contrary to the word of God and it's got to be torn down or this situation will never resolve and that person will never move forward. And whether that's personal, I've got an issue, I've got a wall up for a certain reason, it's there, and I'm refusing to let anybody tear it down, there's a problem, number one. Or it's much easier for us when the other person has the problem and they've got the wall up. And the body of Christ is not supposed to be that way. We're supposed to come alongside one another and bear one another's burdens. And having that stronghold up, that wall, is one of the things we have problems with. If you've got the literal word app and you were to go in and you put your finger on this uh, word fortress, you'll pop up a lexicon. And here's what it says. That in which confidence is placed. In other words, if your confidence rests anywhere but God's word, Holy Spirit power has to tear it down. The heart will never be changed if it's not. Life will never be different if it isn't dismantled, if it isn't pulled to the ground. You say, well, well, what in the world does that look like? Let me ask you a question. Are you in bondage to anything? See, we immediately look at something like alcoholism and we sit here and we say, well, that right there is just a chemical problem. It's not a chemical problem. It's a spiritual problem. It's a spiritual problem. How many people have heard of Pure Life Ministries? Anybody? Okay. Pure Life Ministries is a, is a um, I don't know if it's a commune kind of what it is or whatever. It's a place where guys who have had sexual addiction all their life go in order to get help. And it's an incredibly holy atmosphere that's there. And it's full of people. And the first thing that they want you to understand and that they teach you through that entire program is, is you don't have a sex addiction problem. You got a pride problem. Because all you want to do is feed you. Now, if it's about self, what is it? It's satanic. And isn't it just like Satan to put adulterous affairs and emotional affairs and pornography and all this other stuff out there in order to trip believers up and dismantle their lives so that they can't live gloriously for God, can't worship Him, won't rely on Holy Spirit power, won't trust the Word of God? Can't see Christ in them, the hope of glory. Why? They fill it with too much darkness. That's a stronghold. That is something that somebody has put confidence in saying, this will bring me a greater smile, both externally and internally, than anything else I could possibly think of. Do we not do that with food? I went to the doctor this past week. He said, the thing we need to talk about is this. And he used his little yellow highlighter and he circled my weight. And then I thought, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. <laughs> right? But here's what he told me. Next time you sit down, portion control. Take half of it, take it home. Eat it later. That sounds smart. Sounds smarter than I am. What am I thinking? I just love chips, right? That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> chips are amazing. Portion control. Self-control. Why? If for no other reason than I live longer. See my kids grow up. So we can also minister the gospel longer. I mean, it seems to make sense, doesn't it? If that ends up being a bondage, I've got to have some scripture in order to deal with that. That stronghold has to be torn down. Notice he says after that, verse 5, and I want to give this to you real quick. If you want to break up verses 5 into two little sections, he's going to give us the two key components of exactly what he's talking about, about how strongholds are formed in people's lives and how to address them. How people gain confidence in things that are other than God's word. The very first one you want to look at at the beginning of verse 5 here, you want to write a number one, maybe write the word interception because this is how you deal with it. You have to intercept it, right? We're in Green Bay. 
Brett Favre used to be, or we're in, we're in Wisconsin, Brett Favre used to be a quarterback. We know interceptions, right? We know something about that. Moving on. I don't care if he's listening, whatever. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. That's the first little section. That's the interception section. Let's break it down. Watch how it happens here, okay? We are destroying. We're taking it down. We're taking it down by force. But also it could be understood as being refuting. There's something come along that's not right, not true, and we need to refute it. We've got to say something against it so it no longer holds any power, weight, or influence in my life. It's got to be dismantled in some way. We're destroying speculations. Ah, this comes from the word logimos, which you're probably familiar with the logos of God, right? Jesus Christ explained us the word of God. What this word means is reasoning and thoughts. In other words, something comes along that is trying to get you to think differently. Now, surely not in America that's going to happen. With suggestive advertising, people's opinions, people subscribing to blogs now because we care so much about what other people think. And sometimes we get so wrapped up in the opinions of other people and how we're able to keep in appearances with other people that you end up compromising the Word of God and your faith in Jesus Christ in the process. We don't even know it sometimes. Why? Because it happens gradually. It happens slowly. And it's always got something out there to bait me in order to pull me in exactly where it wants to get me. How do we know that? Check out your phone. You can't say anything out loud with your phone off without coming to it later and they've got an advertisement for the very thing you were looking for that you were talking about before. Why is that? Because they're listening to you. And they want to know how to pull you in their direction. And they want to know how to sell you everything that they possibly can. Why? Because every single one of us are just pawns and make money off of. And that's all they care about. Power, money, power, money. You're crazy. I don't care. It's true. Anybody ever done that? You pulled up your phone. You go, oh, that's weird. We were just talking about that the other day. No one, just me. It's just my phone service. Only your phone service is owned by Satan. Thanks a lot. Pay more attention. It's happening. Especially on Alexa. Alexa will get you. Yeah, see, you think you're just talking to her. She sounds nice. Yeah, she's got devil horns and tarot cards back there. Calm down. (laughs) But here's what it is. We are to refute reasoning and thoughts that come at us. Notice what it says. And every lofty thing, anything that people decide that they're going to lift up and say that this is important. Because why? Look what it tells you at the end. It comes up against the knowledge of God. In other words, these are things that are coming from outside that are trying to sway my mind, will, and emotions to buy into it so that I will further be led away. It's incoming from outside. How do I deal with that? Well, if it's coming from outside, I've got to put it down by force. I've got to refute it. I've got to tear down this wall. Let me give you some examples of some things that might be thinking from outside influences coming in to lead us away from the Word of God and the devotion to Christ. Social media, magazines, music, games, talk shows, friends, school, things like evolution, sexual conduct, vile agendas, homicidal laws. We talked about this before in Sunday school. Do you realize that right now they're entertaining a law in California that once a child is born after 28 days of being alive, if you still don't want the child, you can kill the child. That's where they're at. See, we, we applaud the victory going on in Texas because of the strict, stringent abortion laws that they're enforcing there. Guess what? California's reacting. We're going to make it worse. We're going to say it's okay for them to be out of the womb, living, breathing, cared for. You've even changed a few diapers. But guess what? If it's too much, we okay with that? Does everybody see that the judgment of God has come upon our world? Now, why would they try to push something and sell us on something like that? Aren't they wanting to normalize that throughout all society? Doesn't everybody in California think that everybody needs to be like them? Sad to say, but it's true. They've got the upper hand. We're far more technologically advanced. Don't you know we have Silicon Valley? Bill Gates is from here. Whoopie-doo. What does Jesus Christ say? Don't prevent the little children from coming to me. 
Before I was formed, when I was being knit together in my mother's womb, you what? You knew me. Sounds like life's pretty precious regardless of where it's at. So you take that stronghold and you immediately use the truth of God's word and you address that influence and you pull it down to the ground. You take it down by force and you say, it has no residence in here. There is no vacancy here. Because we've got to apply the word of God to darkness. How about the next part? When after that says against the knowledge of God, because that's what outside influences go against. The next one is number two, submission. Submission is one of the dirtiest words in church today. Because nobody wants to be told what to do. Nobody wants to be told that they're wrong. We some kind of sheepishly, yeah, well, maybe I'm not so on base there. We're not getting any better that way. The idea that submission needs to take place. It's not a dirty word. It's godly. Notice it says, and we are taking every thought captive. Every thought, this word is also, this is the word noema. It's also translated in the scriptures as schemes. We are aware of Satan's schemes. It's also translated mind, how you think. How do you come to the conclusions that you come to? Well, notice, every thought captive, you need to make it a prisoner. How? To the obedience of Christ. If we're taking every thought captive, where is it coming from? Outside? Inside. See, here's the thing. If the barrage of satanic influence wasn't enough sitting on the outside trying to sway us away from the Word of God in very small increments, it's another thing for the fact to realize that your mind is the battlefield in which Satan desires to plant thoughts to get you to entertain. Every single person in this room has been daydreaming at some point and you were thinking a thought that was so horrendous that if you told another person, you would be scared to death about how they would treat you from that moment forward or that you would be committed. Many people, many Christians, struggle with the fact that they hear voices going on inside of their head and they think that they're crazy and they think that they should be diagnosed paranoid, schizophrenic, prescribed medicine and put in a padded room. That's spiritual warfare. The enemy is trying to speak into your mind in order to get you to trail off on some rabbit trail and to sin against God. How do you deal with that? Arrest it. No. Stop ruining my sermons, Jay. (laughs) You have to slap handcuffs on those thoughts. If you're freaked out by them, rest assured, they're not from you. But the enemy wants to do everything he can to tear down God's church. So in a situation like this, whether it's coming from the outside in against the knowledge of God, it's been lifted up as a greater way of thinking, a better philosophy. Well, this is how everybody's doing it now. It's Whoopi Goldberg approved. Who cares about all that stuff? But if it's coming from inside, now you've got a little bit more of a struggle because you're having to weigh out. Is it true? Is it false? Is it right? Is it wrong? When your mind is saturated with the word of God, discernment becomes easier. And you have to take that and arrest it and lead it off to obedience to Christ. Zach? There's other pretty girls in this room. Don't you think it'd be good to maybe see what they're up to? Guys, don't even freaking play like that's not a thought that's coming to your mind. You're lying. Don't even play. Now you say, man, that's pretty serious. It is serious. You're a little freaked out that you said it. Yes. Is it from you? No, it's not. But don't tell me that Satan doesn't like to fish in mines. Girls, I can't even think about what you think because I don't have your brain. But you two look, you know, you know, you probably, whoa, you probably look at each other across the aisle like, yeah, that's bad. Right? What do you think about? Tell me. What is the thought that's suggested in there that tries to lead you astray from things like godliness and faithfulness and worship and sound relationships? Everything that Jesus died to supply for us. Everything that's promoted in the Word of God. Tell me. Has it got to do with appearance? It's always about measuring up to other people. Well, I hope I don't look like a failure here. 
Well, I'm so inadequate in order to get into this situation. I just don't have what it takes to be used by God from this. Stop. Doesn't Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 tell you that you have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus? Notice, it's an affront against the truth that is keeping daughters of God from living faithful lives. That's exactly what it is. It's serious. And this is why Paul is so serious about it. It's not just the fact that people are saying things. It's the fact that behind them, the enemy is always on the prowl. Steal, kill, destroy. Those are not just fun animation words for us to throw around. Satan wants to tear us apart. What does Jesus tell Peter? Isn't it shocking? Now get behind me, Satan. He says, Peter, Satan has asked. Stop, think about it for a second. He's not just blowing smoke on some fairy tale situation. Satan actually came to Jesus and said, Jesus, give me Peter. In fact, the you there in that text is plural. Give me all 12 of them. Give me the 11 that's left. Already got one. Give me the others. What are you going to do with them, Satan? I want to sift them like wheat. Peter, Satan has asked for you that he can sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And when you are restored, strengthen your brothers. Satan actually asks God if he can mess us up. You think that don't start here? Satan knows where to start. He's not a fool. He may be foolish, but he's not a fool. And this is why we've got to have a mind that has a rich dwelling, resource reservoir of the Word of God coating us. Society is not getting better. It's getting worse. He says here that we're to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is complete. You say, good grief, what in the world is he talking about there? See, Paul's an apostle. He's got a heavy responsibility of communicating the truth to people. And so he shows up. He wins people to Christ. He begins a church. He appoints elders. He begins teaching and training and teaching and training and teaching and training and teaching and training. And he does it over and over and over and over again, time and time again, constantly bringing them to the Word so that the Word will feed the indwelling Holy Spirit and begin changing them from the inside out. That's how God grows people. But there comes a point, and that's what makes me think that these Judaizers were actually part of the Corinthian church. There comes a point when grace for people runs out. And the only thing that's left is judgment. You say, grace runs out? It does. How do you think we ended up with the flood? Grace ran out. 120 years of warning them. I mean, some guy's building a, an ark over in the backyard. You've got to take notice at some point and ask, what in the world's going on? It was a sign of judgment. Seven years of tribulation is coming. At that moment, grace had run out. It's time for wrath. Is God always gracious? Yes, he is. But after time and time and time again, Pharaoh, let my people go. Let my people go. Let my, who is this God that I should listen to him? Doesn't he know I'm Pharaoh? Okay. Congratulations, grace has run out. And that's when he overthrew the entire nation of Egypt. Here's what Paul's saying. When I show up, I will have to be bold. I will have to be forceful. In fact, this word punish here, it's the only time this word is ever translated punish in the New Testament. Every other time it's translated revenge or avenge. Here's what he's saying. If you want to keep talking smack and not obey the word of God, I've given you lots of chances and I've constantly called you to obedience. Now I'm done. And when I get there, I will set you straight. And whether that means rebuking them publicly, whether that means discipline, whether that means throwing them out of the church, we don't know. But there came a point here to where these people who were trying to corrupt believers in Christ and telling people that they were believers themselves, it was done. It was done. Submit to the Word of God. Whatever it's asking you to do. If you don't have a quiet time going on right now, 
I encourage you, find time to do it. If you have to get up early in the morning, whatever, it doesn't matter. Spend quality time with God because Satan is at no shortage of what he wants to shoot in our direction. And I'm scared that the church is not prepared to handle his attacks. It's not fighting against people and personalities. It is a spiritual battle that only the word of God serves as a foundation to win. Only the Holy Spirit acts as the power to make it happen. Only prayer calls upon the word or calls upon the arm of God to get involved and to make the difference. And worship, regardless if we face death or life, should be the outcome of any life that is lived in subservience to Jesus. Take every thought captive. Every thought. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that our minds are not lost on your instruction today with how we ought to deal with opposition. Father, you've given such hope in your word. And so often we push it away. Or we found some competing truth that is going to make things better. That we've, we've come upon some new found way in order to uh, get further in life. And Father, all that says is that we don't trust you in your time to do what you need to do. Father, that attitude needs to be corrected in us. When we think that there are competing truths against your word, that is a stronghold that needs to be torn down. When this world wants to lift up something and say, here's where you look, this is where the answer is. God, we need to take it down by force and we need scripture to replace whatever lies we're being told. Father, some of our thoughts scare us to death. Some of them put us in very difficult positions where we even stop to wonder if we really know you or not. Please help us understand the enemy is attacking on all fronts, especially the mind. Father, thank you that Jesus Christ gives the victory. And a simple solution in dealing with this is to take the thought captive, arrest it, bring it to the word of God, Put it into submission to Jesus. If that's not a place where we find ourselves right now, Lord, work on our hearts, minister to our hearts, change our hearts so that we can live in the freedom that you alone provide. Your son died to guarantee it for us. You raised him from the dead to prove to us that it was true. But are we living in it? Father, we have such hope. Help us, Lord, to recognize when we come against these spiritual things exactly what they are and that we would deal with them according to your word. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.